Hello and welcome to another episode of Devs Do Something. I'm your host, or at least I'm normally your host, Sam Flamini, and today we're going to do something a little bit different, where we feature an interview that Patrick Collins, who's a former guest on the show, did for his YouTube channel, the Cypheron Audits YouTube channel, with a security engineer at Trail of Bits. So Patrick's interviewee, uh, his name is Troy, is an expert on all things Web3 testing and things like fuzzing and static analysis. He's a contributor to some of the core Trail of Bits tooling, like Slither, uh, which is really helpful for, for testing workflows and it's stuff that Trail of Bits uses when they go through audits. And I think for those of you in our community who have been asking me about things like fuzzing, static analysis, and testing, I believe you're going to find this conversation that Patrick had with Troy to be incredibly valuable. Um, this is somewhat of a, a new format. We've done this one other time before with Patrick and got good feedback on it. But let us know what you think of this format. If you find this conversation very useful, like I think you will, uh, let us know and we can do similar things like this where we bring on other hosts or feature other conversations that aren't just uh, stuff that I record. So again, this episode is fantastic for those of you who are really interested in testing best practices. And the last thing I'd like to do before we get onto the episode is to just give a shout out to the the Cypher Audits team, right? So this is Cypher Audits is Patrick's new Web3 security firm. Uh, he's pulled together a great team, uh, and it seems like they're off to a pretty good start. So if you're looking for an audit, I recommend checking out their stuff. Patrick is someone who's done a lot for the space. I've learned a lot from him, and so have many of you, likely, uh, from his YouTube channel and his other work. So. I recommend you check it out, and yeah, again, let us know what you think of the episode. So, without further ado, let's get into it. As devs, we all love hackathons. They're a great way to boost your skill set, meet other engineers, and add to your portfolio of work. At Superfluid, we've sponsored many hackathons and decided to start putting on a hackathon of our own the Superfluid Wave Pool. This hackathon is a little bit different though in that it's continuous, it's always open. You can submit any project built on Superfluid at any point throughout the month and have a chance to earn thousands of dollars in prizes depending on how your project stacks up. In just the last couple of months, we've seen dozens of teams build really amazing projects that run the gamut from Superfluid developer tutorials to full-fledged applications uh, to a proof of concept Superfluid Starknet implementation that we thought was really, really impressive. So we encourage you to check it out today. You can learn more by going to superfluid.finance slash wavepool. That's superfluid.finance slash wavepool. Happy hacking. Hello and welcome everybody. Today we have another fantastic guest from the Trail of Bits team. As you know, I'm a huge Trail of Bits fanboy. Absolutely love the tooling that they make, love the content that they make, love all the security and auditing and solidity, non-solidity, just EVM stuff and even non-EVM stuff that they put out. We are here with Alpha Rush, aka Troy, who is on the Trail of Bits team, on the blockchain team. Troy, how you doing? Doing good. How about yourself? I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. So, so Troy, yeah, why don't you tell, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell everybody who you are, you know, what you do, what you're working on. Yeah, I'm a security engineer at Trail of Bits on, on the blockchain team. So that includes both smart contracts and off-chain components as well. I've been there a little bit over a year now, and I guess I am 
associated with my, my Twitter account, I guess, what else? And I am a, a contributor at this point, probably core contributor to Slither and also try to work on our other tools too. Awesome. Well, Troy, really excited to have you here. And before we actually started recording, Troy and I were talking about a lot of the different things we want to cover, maybe fuzzing, testing philosophy, contract languages, compilers, non-solidity, security, how to view your relationship with security, and just all these different things really go underappreciated when we're looking at security and we're looking at the different ways we want to approach smart contract audits. So uh, Troy, we're, we're going we're gonna to jump into all of that here. It's going to be a lot of fun. So Troy, why don't we actually start by talking about testing, right? Well, that's something that I know you're very passionate about. You've mentioned to me that you have a lot of different opinionated testing philosophies, which are awesome. Yeah, what, what's, what's the deal with, with testing? What, is, there, is there a one-size-fits-all testing methodology that when we're building our smart contracts, we should engage with? Yeah, I, I don't know that I would call it one size fits all, but I, I think there's kind of there's kind of a, a toolbox that you can can have available to you and use a, across various different projects. And, and I think we've seen there's a lot of books and articles about like software development lifecycle and like all these things that people have come up with come up with over the years. But obviously, foundationally, you have unit tests, which is basically just that you, you do a very specific thing like this this function does this, and and I think that. You know, that, that's obviously the, the, the bare minimum when, when you get into things more like, th then you start asking yourself like, okay, how can I make, how can I give myself higher, higher guarantees about my, my testing? You start looking at things like test code coverage. So you're, you'll look at stuff like statement and branch coverage. And, and so I think th that's kind of the bare minimum in any software development project, but especially when you're handling lots of money that you would try to attain fairly high test coverage, but, but something that I think is you know, becoming more, more common over probably the last decade and is, is fuzzing, which in traditional software, right? You, you use fuzzing primarily to identify crashes related to like, to, to memory corruption, stuff like that. And, and unfortunately it's a little bit more difficult in smart contracts because there's, you know, there's not memory crashes, or at least as long as the Slitty compiler is doing its job, there aren't. And, and so. What you have to do then is you have to define things in your code that you, you always want to hold true and you can kind of use this ra random transactions to, to your code and, and see, is there a way for this, this important property of my code that I say should always hold true? Can it ever? And, so, and so let me, let me, let me actually just, just jump in here for a second. Cause we, uh, there's a ton of alpha right there. I don't okay. want to just kind of catch everybody up to speed real quick. So you said a, a couple of things. So number one, you said bare minimum needs to be unit tests and then code coverage. And you were talking about branch statements and whatnot, right? So for those of you who are a little bit less familiar, when Troy's talking about branches, he's talking about like, for if you have code that can split off and do different things, you want to make sure that your tests still cover all those different branches or use cases that split off. For example, if you have an if statement, if you have a conditional, if X is zero, do so-and-so, you want to have tests that cover that first if, but you also want to have tests that cover the else case, right? So you, he's saying unit tests and code coverage, including these branches are absolute minimum. And then now he's talking about this thing called fuzzing and variance and assertions and all these other, other keywords. Try actually, before we, we dive too deep in that, I want to give the, the people just kind of a, a high level overview. What is fuzzing and then what is an invariant? Yeah. So, so fuzzing is, is where you take random inputs and run them through your program and you look at the output and you, you know for some predefined thing you, you ask like is this bad so in the case of memory crashing you have these 
you know, something like an address sanitizer. And you, you would say like, is some area of memory access that, that shouldn't have been. And that, that kind of gives you this feedback of whenever some random input goes through my, my test, something bad just happened. We're going to consider that a, a failure and, and warn the user in the case of something like a smart contract system, you might sort of the canonical example that is given a lot when you're explaining what we call like property or invariant based fuzzing and a property or invariant is just something literally that shouldn't vary. So it, it should, regardless of whatever the starting state or all, all these things that have occurred over the, the lifespan of your, your smart contract, no matter what something, some user sends to your contract, it should still hold true after their transaction. And, and a good example of this would be an ERC 20 token, right? If you, you, you deploy your ERC 20 token contract and it has a total supply. You could write a test that says, or a fuzz test that says, no user should ever own more tokens than the total supply. And let's say you have an overflow. If for, if the, the fuzzer generates sequences of transactions that, that cause this overflow, then that invariant or, or property of users not holding more than the total supply would fail. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for that. So, so correct me if I'm wrong, but basically to, to summarize here, fuzz testing is going to be providing random data, random inputs. And we, I know we didn't mention this, but you, you're kind of talking a little bit about stateful fuzzing where you also do random function calls basically to break some assertion or as you put it invariant, right? And the invariant is going to be some assumption about the cold code that should always hold true. So invariant, some assumption about the code that should always hold true. Fuzzing the pro process of providing random data to your functions to test some invariants. And the example that you gave ERC 20, the invariant is going to be a user should never have more than the total supply. And then the fuzzing is going to be doing a whole bunch of random function calls with random data to try to break that invariant. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, like you mentioned stateful fuzzing. So like within this, there's, there's a lot of like, I guess, subcategories, which you can get into, and, and we, we've already discussed coverage. So I would say that's an important distinction that I think people should understand as they adopt these tools, especially with, with discussions that have popped up recently about the differences between Foundry and Echidna. It's very helpful to know that like how your tools work and like what guarantees they're, they're giving you. And so when we discuss something like state or so like we're talking about stateful coverage guided fuzzing. What that means is that all, all of these random sequences of transactions actually will, so in the context of like the EVM, right, they'll, they'll commit the state to, to, the, to the database. So, so if a user transfers their ERC20 token, and the next transaction will, will, will reflect that update. And the, the important quality of like having coverage guided fuzzing is that like oftentimes like you know, if you're just randomly generating inputs, you're, you're so, very... so I want I want to jump in for a second. So coverage guided fuzzing. Wait, what's that? Yeah. Okay. So like we, we mentioned here that fuzzing is like a, a random process, right? Of you, you come up with inputs and you, you, you know, you could literally just sit here and like, you know, hash something and like cast it to an int and say like, throw this at my, my function. And, and you're, you're very quickly going to see like sort of this like decay and like effectiveness after several fuzz runs, like you're going to start seeing like, oh, my, my, my fuzzer isn't, isn't covering those branches, those conditions in, in my, like my, it might not even get past that require statement in my solidity code because it's, it's not intelligent enough to, to get past that. 
And so what coverage guided fuzzing does is that it, it expresses that some test cases are more valuable or more rare than others. So a, a input that exercises that, that branch, it goes through that requirement require statement, it would say, this, this test case is more interesting than the other ones. Let, let's spend time running variations of this test case by, instead of just randomly generating an input, we're going to use this the discovered input and we're going to mutate it. So we'll you know swap the bytes, we'll modify some something about this. And, and then through that, it, you get this kind of nice effect that it's affectionately like evolutionary where it's like, as you do this longer and longer and you, you save these inputs, you, you start to, like we mentioned with unit test coverage, you get, you want to get that high. You also want to get coverage guided fuzzing. You, you want the same effect, right? So over time you start to sort of like saturate the, the state space, which just means like all, all of the possible paths through your program or like the various states that it can reach you start to get more and more assurance as you uh, as you do this more frequently. So basically we're, we're talking about, okay, tests. We obviously need tests. We need unit tests. We need to get a good amount of coverage. We need to do some fuzzing, which is this random stuff. And then we should ideally be looking at this coverage guided fuzzing where we're using kind of the outputs of previous fuzz runs or previous test runs as the input for future test runs. When we run yeah. like a fuzz test, we say, oh, like we have some tool that goes, oh, this was kind of weird. Like we have this, this weird little, little quirk that kind of happened when we did this fuzz test. Let's use that to make smarter decisions about the random data that we use in the future. Is that correct? Yeah, that's a great way to put it. And, and why this matters is that I think the developers are always focused on efficiency, right? Like you, you want really fast feedback you want, and also in the context of security, like we want really high guarantees. And basically the, the benefit of coverage guided fuzzing is that like all cumulative work that you've done up to, to a certain point, it benefits testing in the future. So if you're saving these inputs, you literally save them to, to a disk file and, and you, you can reload them when you start your fuzzer again, any modification that you've made to your, your code, even changing conditions can still more rapidly explore the program than if you were to just take a random fuzzer and run run it like sequentially, right? Because you're you're now having, like I said, it's, it's this evolutionary process of what we're getting, we're able to very quickly explore the program and, and on startup of the fuzzer, you, you will very quickly cover those, those previous paths. And now your fuzzer, the, all that compute that you're using is actually going towards doing something more interesting rather than just doing something random. Now you, you mentioned Echidna as well. And I know you guys recently put out the hybrid fuzzing tool with optic. Now, when you're talking about coverage guiding fuzzing, is that something that Echidna can do right now? Or is that something that optic and Echidna have to do? What's and, and we actually, in another interview, for those who are watching, we also talked with Jocelyn, who's the, what is it, head of engineering, director of engineering at Trailerbits. Yeah. Who, who also talks a little bit about this too, but the difference between Foundry and Echidna. Foundry does this more very random. It does a little bit of little bit of smart fuzzing where it looks at different properties, whereas Echidna or Echidna Optic do more of this guided, smarter looking, smarter symbolic execution hybrid mix for fuzzing. Yeah. What are some of the main differences then between Echidna, this this tool that I just threw out there, Optic, which is kind of this hybrid fuzzing thing, and then Foundry? 
Yeah. Well, just very quickly, I guess I mentioned efficiency earlier. And so, so basically with all these testing methods, we're basically saying for the fewest number of tests and, and the, the least amount of time, how much of the, the possible program can we explore? And, and so that's like always a question because it's like, if you, if you want high guarantees about your code, you basically want to, before deployment, know all of the things that it can do. And, and that's sort of what testing does is that it can find bugs, but it's it's not necessarily going to give us total, to, like we don't have a total guarantee that it, it won't still have bugs, but we can find as many bugs as possible using testing. I actually, I actually love, I just want to highlight that really quickly. What you just said, you said, we want to use these tools to find bugs quickly and efficiently, right? So we want to use the tools. You're basically saying we want to use the tools that are going to allow us to do that the best, the fastest, right? So if there's some tool that is very easy to use, very quick to use, that allows us to get to the same result quickly, that's what we want to use, right? Yeah. That's, that's kind of what you're saying. Awesome. And in practice, I mean, we see this with projects like there's this project called OSS Fuzz where people can upload fuzz tests and, and Google provides this sort of fuzz runner for, for open source projects. And the, all of the work is cumulative. So every time something like, you know, open SSL, they, they, you know, want to do a release, right? When they update their, their code on, on OSS Fuzz, for instance, if there was a previous input that caused a crash, you know, it's going to be checked in to the, to this corpus. And like, it, should that bug be reintroduced, it will, will presumably be found again, or, or, or even just like when you're testing new code, right. With, with a fuzzer, if, if your fuzzer is working on exploring this, this old code that you have already tested a bunch, it, it might not reach this newly introduced code as, as quickly. So, so that's kind of what we mean when we are concerned with efficiency to, to get back to your question about how optic and echidna fit together. So echidna, as far as I know, since its release, like I could be wrong on this has always been coverage guided. I, I think that pretty much like, like if you have no tool for, for, if you don't have any tool for a smart contract language or some platform or anytime you're doing a security review, you, you could obviously just write very quickly, like a script that, that does random input generation and, and kind of throw it throw it at a, a, another program, but it's pretty standard within the fuzzing community to, to aim for having coverage guided by default. So, so what this entails is that you, you would, you would like in your, so in the context of the, the EVM, right, you have the, the byte code, which, you know, in the interpreter loop of, of the EVM, each byte code instruction is at, a, is at a certain program counter. And so the way that you track coverage is like, have we seen this, this Bytes that is an instruction at this program counter before. And, and so when, when a kid sees a new program counter that it hasn't previously seen, it will save that input as interesting and then spend time mutating it. And, and so what happens when you com combine this, the, the coverage guided fuzzing with, with optic, which optic is just a sort of a wrapper around a symbolic execution engine. And, and what it does is that when you're like say you have run echidna, right? You have a corpus on disk. What what optic does is it it will load that corpus and it will symbolically execute the the, the that that tr sequence of transactions. So what that means in, in practice is that you know when you're going through the uh, when, you're, when you're evaluating these transactions, rather than you know return something that that is a, a concrete input like a like an integer, you just have an expression, like a, a mathematical expression saying like, 
these are the constraints of the program at this point. And, and so what it will do is it'll say, we've run this sequence of transactions symbolically. We now have this really long constraint and uh, a kid that hasn't been able to, to reach this point. Can we, can we add a, can we give this to an SMT solver and ask, ask it to generate a, a sequence of transactions that could reach this point. And, and so what you're doing here is that rather than trying to like symbolically, like fully symbolically execute a program, you're spending most of your time doing the fuzzing or that's, that's the goal at least, and trying to spend at least the least amount of time using an SMT solver because it's just a very computational intensive activity to do. And now, now I know we, we introduced a lot of terms there, like corpus, SMT solver, symbolic yeah. execution. For those of you who are like, what the hell are they talking about? Definitely check out that interview with Jocelyn. We, we went over, we go over a lot of that and please leave comments on those videos. If anything there is confusing because yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of stuff going on here. I don't want to dive too deep into here because we, we covered it a little bit with, with Jocelyn, but that makes a lot of sense. So, right. So there's a kid is doing all this extra stuff with optic, right? It's trying to do this symbolic execution. It's trying to just get way, way smarter about yeah. what random inputs it's going to give. Yes, exactly. It's basically saying like, with coverage guided fuzzing, like you, you may have things that are just like, even then still just like, like if you choose like one random input value, it, it's very likely that a randomly, even the guided process, like might not find it. And so there's a couple of ways that, that we get around this. One of them is extracting constants from code with, with Slither. So, so we literally look at the source code and we tell Echidna, Hey, this value appears in the source code. Maybe it's crucial to, to, to reaching some points in the program. And, and if we can't do that, then we, we take a, a mathematical representation of the program and we ask a solver. So sort of this is black box thing that we give a formula and say, like, can, can you, you know, find some input that satisfies these conditions? And so, and I think that I guess the, there's also some other interesting things that that, that it does, but I, I don't know that's worth getting into. I, I was gonna say, I think, I think for the most part, that's already like a really good dive of like, Hey, here, here's what it's doing. It's doing all this extra stuff, making this, these fuzzing inputs. I, I keep just saying way smarter, which I know is really not a good explainer, but from a really, really high level, that's essentially what it's doing, just yeah. giving much smarter inputs. So I, I do kind of want to back up. We're getting a little bit in the weeds here with symbolic execution and like kind of really advanced fuzzing stuff. Yeah. But I kind of want to back up to the, the testing philosophies again, right? Cause you yeah. mentioned you have very strong opinions on testing philosophies. So I, I think we've, we've covered some really, really good stuff in my mind, actually, this needs to be the new normal, right? The new normal is unit tests have good test coverage, and then you need to define your systems and variants and do your fuzz and stateful fuzz tests to do so. To me, that's like the new normal, but I'm curious what other testing philosophies and whatever other insights you have on testing. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, sorry for getting in the weeds there. I, I, oh, no, I think you're that um, good, man. You're good. That's what we're here for. We're all yeah. we're here to be nerdy. Yeah. So so when we we're talking about like what what tools do we have in our toolbox to to you know try to to have high assurance about our our program? I, I think there's a couple other ones. The primary one, I guess, would be static. So and this goes back to something we, we talked about earlier, which is that I, I guess I'm going to introduce some new terms here. Unfortunately, yes. But, so the things that we've been discussing, unit testing and fuzz testing are, are both, they fall under this umbrella of dynamic testing, which dynamic just means like you're, you're actually doing something, right? 
like dynamic stretching, you know, you're moving around trying to get warmed up, right? That's, that's what it means. Static stretching, you know, you're, you're sitting still. And so in the context, oh, I of, love this analogy, by the way, yeah. I, I've never heard this, but yeah, this makes a lot of sense. Dynamic stretching versus static stretching. Yeah. Same thing. And, cool. and so it's kind of, so with dynamic testing, you have this really nice property of like, okay, anytime our test fails, assuming our test is correct, right? Like we found it because, you know, we actually ran the code and we know for sure. But the, the trade-off is, and the, these things that we've been talking about, especially when you get really in, in advanced with things that are like really intensive, like like fuzzing, you, you know, it, it very practically requires time and resources. And and so then we start to consider like, okay, well, if if these dynamic testing things are, you know, sometimes expensive, you, you know, you have to have a long running fuzzer, for instance, or, you know, we can only find bugs with them how, how can we, you know, verify the absence of bugs and also do it efficiently? And so, so that's where you get into this, what it was called static analysis. So that, that's the paradigm there is dynamic analysis versus static. Um, running so some tool real quick, just looks at your code, doesn't execute anything and just looks for stuff that's possibly out of the ordinary. Yeah. Right? Like if, if I may jump in Slither, for example, it'll look at your code. It, it's kind of hard coded to look for reentrancy bugs when you make an external call and then change some state after that external call. It'll look for that. It'll call that out and go, Hey, this code smell this is bad practice. Don't do that. Right. It doesn't run any code. It just sees that you're, you're doing something in your code that you probably shouldn't be doing and lets you know. Yeah. And, and, uh, and the sort of the, the trade-off you're making here is that you're, you're basically being less restrictive about are all of the results like true, true bugs, like are these things that could actually occur in practice or are these just things that look like bugs? Because like you said, it, it follows a, a pattern. And, and so the, I mean, how this is typically explained is that it's, it's an over approximation. So you have this kind of like fuzzy, you know, bound around your program of like, what could po potentially happen just by kind of doing something, uh, some, I mean, it is, you, and the. So it's, it's a fuzzy boundary around what your code can actually do, right? Fuzzy boundary. Now we're, now we're using so, all sorry, the... Yeah, I shouldn't use that word, I guess. Um, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. You're sorry. It's, yeah. it's, it's a blurry boundary. The, the line is blurred. Yeah. And so the, the unfortunate thing is that you will get false positives and you'll, you'll find things like, this isn't a bug, right? Like this isn't, this can't, this can't happen for some other reason. And if you were to write a test case trying to do that, it, it, it would be fine because, you know, your, your program can't actually do that. But because you're using a technique that it makes that trade-off to basically be, be and the, the, I guess the, the thing is like, I don't know that it's a bad trade-off to be making because the, the thing that's nice about stack analysis is that it basically verifies the absence of this class of vulnerability. So for instance, and, and I'm talking theoretically here because in, in practice, people who write tools make mistakes or just to decisions that make developers' lives easier. So for instance, like when we work on detectors in Slither, we might allow bugs to be missed in order to present less results to the user, if that makes sense. Because like, if you have to filter through all these po false positives, is it more worthwhile to try to like increase the, the, the true amount of bugs or do we want to present just all of the results? So th th this, that's a very like hard thing in practice to, to, to do, you know, there's all sorts of like, and the biggest thing is just that it takes time, right? Like you yeah. have to get developer feedback yeah. of, but, but the nice thing is like for, for in, in practice, like when you actually do create 
an analysis that is, you know, follows these guarantees about over approximation. If you, if you run this tool on your code, then you know that, Hey, like I never make, uh, you mentioned reentrancy, right? So if I never write to a variable after making an external call, I can verify the absence of this type of reentrancy mm. from my code. Yeah. Not to say that, that there aren't other bugs or, but, but we've verified the absence of this one in particular. So when, yeah. when you take this as like a holistic approach of like, you know, and, and this goes back to the whole, so I guess adding to the whole. Just, or, just, just to jump in. So we, we have, we have about 20 minutes left here. Okay. I think, I think we could probably wrap up static analysis just cause I think, I think, I think we, we've done a good job covering it, Yeah. but yeah, sorry, go, go ahead and finish your thought. Unless I totally yeah. derailed no, you. No, I, I was just going to say that the other aspect of having efficient testing would also be just recognizing that each method is, is suited to finding different types of bug bugs. And so when, when you're using these tools, it's, I think, you know, you can kind of treat it as like an everything, but the kitchen sink, like literally just use as much things as you can see what falls out. And, and that's the ultimate way to have high assurances about what your code does is like you, you want to use the wide variety of testing methods and you want to be using the tested testing methods to their full effectiveness by making sure they're efficient and, you know, not wasting time doing something spurious. Troy, if, if you could have a one-liner, one line, that's all you get to, as a piece of advice for people who are looking to test their smart contracts, what would that one-liner be? It'd probably be a write down what you expect your code to do. Like, like right if you are very thoughtful and take the time to say, this is what my code does. I, I think that it will have a profound benefit for yourself, your teammates and anyone helping you like third party firms and such. You hear that guys? Troy said, write good documentation. All right. He said, write good docs. The, the joke in the community is nobody reads docs, but nobody reads docs because a lot of docs are not written very well. Write good docs, write exactly what your code does. Absolutely love that. So Troy, so we, yeah, we have like 20 minutes left here. We've talked a lot about kind of testing different philosophies and testing kind of different, a lot of, a lot of the different tools that are available for web three testing right now. Yep. I know there's a, a, a number of other things we, we had on our plate, like contract languages, compilers, non-solidity security, how to view the relationship with the security firm. What, what's something that you, which path do you want to go down? What do you want to talk about next? Yeah. Well. On the, on the topic of efficiency, I think that working with, when you're working with security firms, right, the, the, and this also goes into the, the non-solidity thing too, is like the, all of the things that we've discussed, right. We sort, sort of delved into the high level of like what these things are. And then we talked a little bit about like EVM specific things or solidity specific things, but in general, like the, these, these testing methods apply to, to other areas. So if you're working on a rust project, right like we have this thing called test fuzz that we will use to do coverage guided fuzzing of rust programs. And, and so I think the same things apply in, in any domain um, that there's all sorts of tricks of, of the trade to, to make it work on different platforms, whatever. But when you're working with the security firm, I think that's one of the values that they can provide is sort of giving guidance on these kind of things, because if all you walk away from a security review is a list of bugs and you do not have any idea, like, how can we prevent these bugs in the future? How can we uh, catch these bugs earlier? How can we prevent them from being reintroduced? Then it, it wasn't as effective of a security engagement as it could have been, which is really difficult to do, but that's the, the goal. 
I love that actually every, pretty much every security professional that I've spoken with has kind of that exact same mentality, that exact same vice. The relationship that you have with your security form or, or, or if you're a security auditor, you're an up and comer, the report isn't the product. The report is part of the product. The product is this security journey, right? It's A, the report, yes, it's a list of bugs, but B, you are, they're hiring you to help them be more secure, not just for this audit, but for all code in the future, right? So everything that Troy's been talking about, testing philosophies, different tools to use, right? These are some of the, the knowledge that you should be considering giving to your client. And as a client, these are some of the things that you should expect from your security professional, right? Hey, what can I do to stay safer? What can I do to make it so that, you know, we don't get hacked for $200 million again? So absolutely, I love that. Yeah, and, and I think it's, I think we were, were talking earlier about, you know, paying, paying security firms like $50,000 to try to formally verify your code, right? Which I think that's one thing that I, I see that I, or one thing that I see frequently happening is this thing where people will have like three day audits, right? And, or, and simultaneously the same people who want three day audits, right? They also want formal verification. And so when, when we were talking about this really important thing of like understanding what code does, right? I, I think, um, you know, I, I'm not going to claim to be, you know, the, the best security auditor ever. And so maybe it's just me, but like, it takes me a very long time to actually find deep seated vulnerabilities of something that's just, you know, a, a, like a logical issue, right? Those are, those are things that probably take longer than three days to find manually, let alone to find with, with automated tooling, I would, would think would take a lot longer. So when, whenever you're balancing this, this trade-off of cost and efficiency, right? You, you really need to make sure that you, you are allotting time to do the, the really valuable activities. And only if you just have a, a lot of time and money to start investigating things that are very time intensive, but there's a lot of prerequisites to, you know, if you're going to do formal verification, you should have all of these things lined up and have a really good idea of what your system does. And, and the great thing about this is, you know, all, all these things that I've mentioned up until this point are like freely available that you don't need a security firm to do them for you and you can benefit from them. And when you get to the point where you're actually paying people money to do something, you can focus on th things that matter. And, and so I, I think that's something that's like maybe not well understood or just until you've been working in this industry for, you know, a year or two, like, and you've worked with multiple firms or you've been on lots of smart contract projects, like maybe you just don't have enough experience under your belt to see, but I think that's valuable to know. I think that makes a lot of sense. And um, yeah, I think that's really good feedback for everybody who's listening. So I do, I do want to pivot though, and talk about either, either both different smart contract languages and compilers and also non-Solidity security, because I, I know that's something that you're passionate about as well. But actually, before we jump into that, just straight up, is Viper the underrated goat or like what? Yeah, I personally, <laughs> ha I personally have not used Viper extensively. No, I'm just kidding. I do like Charles a lot. I've talked with yep. him some. I think that he... Uh, Charles is, Cooper is, is, very... is the, the main dev behind Viper, by the way, for those who don't know. Really just phenomenal dev. I, I sat with, behind him at a, at a hackathon. And anytime I see somebody like ripping around Vim, just like opening 18 files in like the span of 20 seconds, I'm like, oh, okay, this person's like insane. So yeah, Charles, really good dude. Yeah, and and I think he has a lot of a lot of great ideas. I think 
there's this kind of unfortunate um, reality of, I don't know if it's that the industry is super small or, you, you know, it's very hard to fund things that don't necessarily have a, a profit thing. But whenever we're talking about tools and languages, it comes down to that these things take, you know, I would say like at minimum, like it probably takes five years to build a language, right? It, it, and the same thing's true of, like, you know, static analysis tools are fairly involved as well, because I mean, there's a lot of overlap between stack analysis and compiler. So whenever we're talking about building tools and like how to make these things better, the, the thing that I'm really passionate about is like code reuse be, because it's, it's very time intensive, costly, and requires a lot of labor. And the, the way that you get a very good language and, and good tooling is having a lot of people looking at the reusing it and and so slowly sifting out these like really nasty bugs right and so i when we're talking about new smart contract languages that's something that that i think charles has talked about and like that i would like to see is having you know lots of code reuse and so what this looks like practically is you know in the in the traditional programming world that we have llvm which is like most languages target this shared code format and then you can lower it to different architectures and you have this really nice property of any tooling or any optimizations that you want to perform sort of benefit the whole ecosystem as a whole. And I think this has been a, a shortcoming in the, the smart contract languages, but it, at the same time, it is like, as I said, a, a very time intensive and expensive thing. So it's, it's very clear like why it hasn't happened, but we, we, when we see these up and coming languages, like viper fay few move and stuff i i do think there is this you, you know there's this this trade-off to balance of like if you're targeting a different vm than the evm it, it probably makes sense to to make a different language but if you're targeting the evm right i i do think at some point like all of the things to optimize code for a stack machine could probably be reused and and the benefit of this would be that you know debuggers analysis tools optimizations would, would, would all be shared between languages. And, and you know, w there's sort of this like running thing on Twitter where, you know, as soon as you get into the solidity, you know, the thing that you tweet is the weird things that it does, the weird thing that's happen happens, weird code generation things, weird, you know, sort of like it, you sort of become like the shaman of solidity. And like, that's, <laughs> that, that's considered like knowing a lot, right. which, which I mean, it's, I think it's good because in some ways, like people learn the EVM through this way, but at the same time, I, I think that it, it is symptomatic of like how the compiler was built and choices that were made architecturally, and that in order for you know developers to to like I I guess I'm what I'm saying like it, instead of focusing on these kind of things, it would be nice if we were more focused on things like that were higher level related to like building the code itself versus like having to get in the weeds of, um, mm. you know, understanding some intricacy about the, the, the code generation process. Right. Like, like, I feel like maybe an example is like, all right, like modifiers and solidity, a modifier is just tacked on to every single function you use it for. And so you have to kind of, if you're trying to make some really gas efficient code, maybe it doesn't make sense to use a modifier because it's just going to repeat that chunk of code over and over and over again, yeah. which you probably don't need to do. Right. And you're talking about like Solidity Shaman, a Solidity Shaman is going to know that spending a lot of time learning Solidity is going to know that, but you're saying, Hey, it would actually be better if we kind of focus as a community on, Hey, how should a language look like, as opposed to just, this is what one looks like. I'm going to learn the ins and outs of it. Yeah. Is that kind of what you're saying? 
Yeah, I mean, I think with, I mean, there's also this this trend of, you know, liking Rust. And, you know, I, I think that there's good reason for it. Like, there's a lot of things where having a philosophy that your your compiler drives you to write better code and gives you feedback, I, I think that's something that's that's lacking. And and I guess, the like I said, the, the unfortunate thing is, like, there are teams trying to do this, but they're doing it in a way that you, you sort of get this walled garden effect of, like, we're not going to share in a lot of the benefit of people writing new languages if they do it in a way that forces you to forces you to you know work with their tooling or something like that. Which of course I'm I'm not saying that you should make that. Like there are reasons to not you know like trying to compile Solidity to BPF. Like I'm not sure that makes like something like that. But th there probably are good places to reuse code, especially when it comes to this like developer tooling, I think would be a great place to like have, like, for instance, like, you know, Go has first class support for fuzzing in the language. Like is it, and also like most compiler systems have build systems. Is it, and package management, like, is there a reason that, you know, the Ethereum community could not come together and like have a shared something like cargo or something like pip or something like, not to say that these things are like solved problems or easy, but that you know, we could get to a better place where, you know, and some of these things are very critical for security too. Like if you're importing open Zeppelin and the version is this, like you, you there's a lot of foot guns that just by upgrading the this version of the library that you could be safeguarded from. And, but it's, it's very hard to tell if you're vendoring packages from open Zeppelin, like which version are you relying on or something like that, or, or even just testing Solidity, right? Like in order to test Solidity, it's just historically been like an act of Congress. Like it's very difficult and you, you know, it'd be nice if there were something like Rust, like you could do a test in line and it would compile and run on the EVM. Like, like I, I dare to say that lots of things, like lots of money could have been saved by just mm. very simple things, like having these things in place. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. We need more open source tools, more good open source tools, more communication about these tools. I 100% agree. So we only have a couple minutes left here, uh, Troy. So I, I did want to just briefly touch on non-solidity security, although we, or like non even maybe even non-EVM security, although we probably don't have time to get into the weed, the weeds of them. Over at Trillibits, I know you guys have done some dive deep dives on different chains, kind of the, the Nakamoto coefficient of different chains, which we, we don't have to go into. We, we just talked briefly about just non-solidity security. We talked a little bit about Rust. Uh, do you have any thoughts on either like non, either non-solidity or even just non-EVM security in the blockchain Web3? Yeah. I mean, I would say that if, if you're looking to, to dive in, like, I, I think that people underestimate the, the knowledge that's like independent of Solidity that you, you probably want to learn to, to be proficient at these things. Cause things like go Ethereum and clients and like those people, like people need security researchers working on those. I think about that all the time, like auditing, for example, everyone's just looking at the Solidity, but nobody's looking, Hey, does this make sense from a client perspective? And I feel like that's why MEV went under the radar for so long. Cause nobody was looking at that. Yeah. And, and I mean, and that's something that I think is nice about working at Trailbus is like, I primarily worked on Solidity for like a decent while, but over time I've gotten to get the experience of like working on things that are, you know, in Go and Rust and, and sort of like closer to the metal of these chains, like 
and yeah, like you, you mentioned consensus and stuff like that. And I, I think it sort of has this nice feedback loop of like, you know, if you're reading through a, an Ethereum implementation, like you're going to understand Solidity a lot more. And, and also just that it also has this, I think it's good for, for the, the client teams because it's like a lot of these things, like there's mistakes. Like if you were to ask yourself, like how to build a blockchain from first principles, there's a lot of things like that you can do wrong and, and end up in a position where you're, you're making the same mistakes that you know, someone else made before you. And, and I was, I would also just say like the attack surface is just like infinitely more like I, there is this whole thing where you have like the whole like DeFi composability and like, because you depend on another DeFi project and they depend on something else, you have like this, like, like, like some of that risk I would say is like in, in similar vein of complexity, but like when you actually have a network and you have a file system and stuff like that, like there's a lot of things that can, can go wrong because like these are general purpose programming languages and not like domain specific language. So there, there's a lot more to understand, but, but as I said earlier, the, the same techniques can be applied, like, go, like fuzzing and go and rust you, you, there's a lot of good, or like I said, go has native support for it. And then it's fairly easy to set up fuzzing and, yeah. and rust for test fuzz. Gotcha. Yeah. Thanks for all the, uh, thanks for all the insight there. So we have maybe 30 seconds left. Let's, let's, let's wrap it up here, I guess. Yeah. Troy, is there, is there any like last bit of advice you want to give to anybody who's thinking about getting into security, who's thinking about trying to make their smart contract code a little bit better. So just any, any advice to people who are becoming more and more security minded? Yeah. I, I would just say that I, I think it's like, I, myself, like I'm interested in like all these, like, you know, it's sort of like academic and fancy things. And I, I didn't, go to college for computer science. So like, I, I don't really understand these things either. So I think it's important to like, just really try these things for yourself. And you sort of start to understand like, and build an intuition very practically of like, what, what are these things doing? And why is that helpful? And why is that giving me higher assurance? I, I don't think you can trade that for anything. Gotcha. Makes sense. Well, Troy, AKA Alpha Rush. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for giving all this insight, all this alpha on testing, compilers, different types of security, the relationship to have with the client and auditors when doing security focused journeys. Thank you so much. And we will see you all next time. It's great talking to you, Patrick. Thanks. All right. Bye all.